Hello and welcome. You've joined us on Search for Truth and it's great to have your company. I'm delighted you can join us. This is Brian's fourth Bible talk in this series of six gospel programmes. I hope you're enjoying them if you've been following week by week. Last week we looked at the Lamb's Book of Life, that heavenly register which contains the names of all those who've put their trust in Jesus. I do hope you're included in that list of names because this week Brian's talking about beginning to get to know God better. So, Brian, where do we begin? We begin in Genesis, John, and I want us to focus today on four things God tells us about himself in the first Bible book of Genesis. These four things really demonstrate the foundational nature of this first book. If Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is true, then we would expect scientists to discover what they now know. That might sound like a rather bold claim, but let me introduce you to the person who made it. He's Arno Penzias, the Nobel Prize-winning scientist who, with Wilson, discovered the cosmic background radiation. And he's on record as saying, the best data that we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Bible as a whole. So let's begin with an obvious focus on God as the creator. In Genesis, right at the beginning, the very first thing God tells us about himself is that he is the creator. The very first verse of the Bible reads, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The rest of that chapter describes in detail what God created and how he did it, namely by his word, as well as over what time frame. As we read through the Bible, we learn that the word is a title given to Jesus Christ and that it was through Jesus that everything was in fact created. We also learn, following the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that God began a new creation. Those who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ are described as being a new creation or new creatures. At 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if you want to check it up. Finally, we learn that at some time in the future, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, as prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 65 and described fully in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. But many today reject God as creator because if he made us, then he also makes the rules we fail to live by. And some people don't like that. But all God's commandments are for our good. There's nothing better. I remember hearing about a man flying in the days before there were severe restrictions about entering the cockpit, even by invitation. This man, having expressed such an interest, was in fact invited in. He was struck by the expansive panoramic vista in front of him as he looked out with the captain of the aircraft. Can you fly more or less where you want? was his rather naive question. Oh no, the captain said, we must maintain course within a 10 mile wide corridor. 10 miles? Isn't that a bit restrictive, was the question. On the contrary, replied the pilot, to fly outside of that would be to risk great danger of a collision with another aircraft. True freedom for us is to stay within that 10 mile corridor. God hasn't given us a 10 mile air corridor for our safety, but he has given us the Ten Commandments. To live well, and paradoxically, as it may seem, to experience the greatest freedoms, we must live within the scope of these Ten Commandments. 
To go outside them by breaking them is to court disaster. That brings us to the second revelation of God in Genesis, namely about God as the lawgiver. A second thing God tells us about himself in Genesis is that he is, in fact, the lawgiver. This first happens when he says to Adam in chapter 2 and verse 16, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. In practical terms, this law was a test of Adam's love for God. That love, or lack of it, that would be shown by whether or not he obeyed this one single command. In essence, however, this was the first declaration to humanity of the moral law of God. The fact that God is our creator gives him the right to be our lawgiver. But the fact that God is love also guarantees that his laws are always going to be in our best interests. Sadly, when things go wrong in life, some people tend, without thinking perhaps, to blame God. If life seems unfair, usually it's said to be God's fault for at least whatever has gone wrong, and that's used as the justifying reason for not believing in God's existence. But the God of the Bible introduces himself as a God of grace, someone who's much more lenient towards us than we in fact deserve. But sin still has to be paid for nonetheless. Before we move on to think of God as the judge, I want us to appreciate grace over against fairness. Notice we've said nothing about unfairness. Let me illustrate. I once heard a teacher talk about the time he set his students an assignment, clearly stating when it was to be handed in. There were many students who didn't have it completed when the day that had been set finally arrived. They begged for more time. The teacher reminded them of what he'd said, emphasised that he had meant what he'd said, but on this occasion he said he'd allow an extra couple of days for them. At the end of the next term, the same thing happened. Again, some were late, and again begged for more time, and it was once more given, but with an emphasised reminder that the same would not happen next time. Well, at the end of the third term, the very same situation was repeated. This time the teacher reminded them of the warnings that had previously been given, and that this time he wasn't going to give any more time extensions. Assignments that were not completed would be marked now as fail. Those who'd presumed on the same favourable treatment as before complained loudly. But that's not fair, they said. Fairness? The teacher replied. You want fairness? Then I'm going to give you fairness. For those of you in this situation, and now demanding fairness, I'm going to go back over the records and replace the status of your past late submissions so that they also now are shown as fails. That is what is fair. If any of the students did survive to the next year of education, they did so having learnt the meaning of grace and that their complaints were not actually about unfairness, but about fairness. By presuming on grace, they'd lost sight of the proper meaning of fairness. They stood condemned, fair and square. Now, so much for God as creator and lawgiver, the next theme we pick up from Genesis concerns God as the judge. In the Apostle Paul's Mars Hill sermon, 
He tells us that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's from Acts chapter 17. Sure enough, the third thing that God tells us about himself in Genesis is that he is the judge. After Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, the Bible text says, this is Genesis 3 and verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there God judged Satan through the serpent, and then he judged Eve, and finally Adam. This role of God as the judge is seen throughout the Bible. In the Gospels, the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross is the expression of God's judgment on humanity's sin. We read there in Genesis chapter 3 in verses 18 and 19 of sweat and thorns and dust. And these things were all related to the curse in the judgment that God spoke. Well, Christ, our substitute, sweated in anticipation of the cross. And there he wore a crown of thorns as he went down into the dust of death, as it says in Psalm 22. Every aspect of our curse, the sweat, the thorns and the dust, they were all taken over by Christ when dying in our place. But to claim his death as our death, his sentence as our sentence, we must turn from our sins and receive him and be joined to him by a personal faith commitment. This is the means by which we can recognise God as our Saviour. And this is the fourth and final thing that God introduces about himself early on in the Bible. In fact, in its first book of Genesis. Alongside the judgment spelled out in the Garden of Eden to our first parents, the Lord God gave the promise of the Saviour who would come and defeat Satan by bruising him on the head, it says, as promised in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And that's when he himself, our Lord Jesus, would suffer in the process. His heel would be bruised. The role of God as Saviour in the person of Jesus Christ is a major theme of the Bible, of course. The Old Testament points forward to this in many ways, such as the sacrificial lambs, etc. Then in the Gospels, we have the historical record of the birth, life, death and resurrection and ascension of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. The God of the Bible keeps his word, keeps his promise from first to last. Our maker, our ruler and our judge is also our saviour. Hallelujah for that.
Thanks, Brian, for your talk today. Now, if there's a comment or question you have after listening today, do get in touch, and I'll be giving you the contact details shortly. And uh, if you've pen and paper to hand, you'll be able to make a note. The talk you've heard today is available, along with other gospel talks, in a booklet form. Uh, so, if you ask for the title "Really Good News for Today," and write off to us either by email or post, you can have a book. And here's the address: Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4 8DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Also, look out for Search for Truth, featuring on www.twr360.org, and we're thrilled that this. Will give you yet another excellent way of accessing again the program you first heard here on air. Now that's all we have for today. I'm sorry, but it's been great anyway to have your company, and I hope you can join us next week when Brian will tell us about the two definitive questions which define history and prove God's love to us. But until then, it's very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David, our singers, and me John. So bye for now, and may God richly bless you. you.